0: to the Rob Burgess show. I'm of course your host Rob Burgess. On this our 204th episode, our guest is Yesiko Ardas. Yesiko Ardas is an assistant professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. She received her doctorate from the University of California Davis in American history. During the 2017 and 2018 academic year, Ordaz was the Andrew W. Mellon-Sawyer Seminar Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Washington, which focused on comparative racial capitalism. Her first book, The Shadow of El Centro, A History of Migrant Incarceration and Solidarity, was released in March 2021. Her second project will explore the multifaceted history of veganism and plant-based foods throughout the Americas, focusing on colonization, food, politics, and social justice. This research will illuminate the wider and transnational history of Latinx veganism and how communities of color have engaged with questions of animal, human, and plant relations for centuries. A quick programming note. Her essay, which we discussed during the first part of this episode, is titled The Detention and Deportation Regime as a Conduit of Death, Memorializing and Mourning Migrant Loss, and is included in the book A Field Guide to White Supremacy, edited by Kathleen Belew and Ramon A. Gutierrez, which will be published Tuesday, October 26, 2021, by the University of California Press. And now on to the show.
1: My name is Yessi Cordaz, and I am an assistant professor of ethnic studies at the University of Colorado in Boulder.
0: And of course, I read your um, your essay in this book here, and uh, it was very informative, uh, very uh, heartbreaking and, and terrible, of course, but uh, I did learn a lot from it. so. Um, How did, uh, you know, I was kind of wanting to go back a little bit and how did your upbringing and and where did you grow up and and how did that influence what you focus your studies on now?
1: Yeah, it definitely shaped my intellectual interests. So I was born and raised in Northern California. um, Oh, where? uh, East Bay, Contra Costa County. Okay.
0: All right. Yeah. I uh, lived in Ukiah for three years.
1: Okay. Uh, no, yeah, yeah.
0: More, more Northern, but yeah. I was going to
1: say, yes, Northern yeah. California can be a little misleading.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a big place. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I was raised um, with two uh first-generation migrants from Michoacan, Mexico. My parents um, who migrated to California in the 1980s and so really grew up with like their perspectives and their stories as immigrants to the United States um, and also raised um by a father who for a while was detained and deported um, right before I was born. And so those experiences definitely not only shaped how I view the world, but sort of my interest in wanting to tell um, the story and history of migrant incarceration on a broader level in in the book. And then uh, more specifically in the article that's part of a field guide to white supremacy.
0: Mm. Yeah. Just the whole idea of being deported to a country is so just terrible and scary and dislocating and just seems like, you know, I just always imagine getting deported and it's like, what do you do? Where do you go? Who do you see? I mean, you haven't, you lived in this other country. You don't know these, any, anybody here, you haven't been around, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know some people if you've, you know, if you were an adult when you left, but you know, it's still gotta be just terribly disorienting.
1: Right. And I found that a lot in my research. So definitely um, some people will be deported to places where they grew up and they Mm. thankfully know folks. But for like now in 2021, we're deporting a lot of people who might not be U.S. citizens, but for the exception of a few months or a few years, have spent their entire life in the United States and are definitely deported Mm -hmm. to places um, that they don't remember being because they were like babies when sure. they were like, right? yeah, and don't wow. have any contacts. And so that is scary. And, um, it just adds to the level of things they have to maneuver once they're deported.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. Um, and you describe this, uh, in your essay here, you describe this as a conduit of death and I, I can't help but think that's an accurate description. It's, it's very dehumanizing and, and Seemingly by design, that way uh, it's it's made to be that way. It seems
1: exactly. At least that's what I'm arguing. Um, and I didn't start there. Like I might have assumed that based on personal experiences, like I said with with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, but was very open to following the research archival process and seeing what I found. But just unfortunately, like my work really starts in World War Two, 1945, up until the present, um, and so time and time and time again, example after example. Unfortunately, this is what I argue because it's what I found based on the sources.
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I mean, we even had people saying this openly and it wasn't just and I I do appreciate your scope in that, you know, this is not a problem that started with Donald Trump. And, you know, of course, he he did what he did. But, you know, there was I remember Mitt Romney talking about people self-deporting because we're going to make it so difficult on them. And uh you know this, this mentality and, and you go to you know back to the 50s uh you know all that it it, it it's a long process bipartisan you know <laughs> it's Absolutely. yeah Absolutely. yeah I don't think either party has a monopoly on this or, or any any one decade for sure right.
1: um and actually makes it probably more challenging because with the yeah. system in the United States then what do you do with that
0: right Well, I guess for people, um, we're we're talking about this, this essay uh, for people that haven't read the essay, what are some of the bullet points you can give people of of some of the things you found in your research?
1: Yeah. So my specific essay in the Field Guide to White Supremacy focuses on detention and deportation as a regime, um, as a conduit of death, like you said earlier, and I do two things. One, I'm memorializing the... uh, Great amount of deaths that have um, come to pass in the different processes of migration, apprehension, detention, and deportation. But I'm also talking about um, the systemic avenues that lead to migrant loss. Um, And so I highlight different examples focusing mostly on the 1990s and the start of the 2000s, but definitely dipping a bit back and a bit forward from there. Um, I talk about, The migration and apprehension process during uh, the early 1990s and the shifts that occur in 1994 with NAFTA. So, for folks who are not familiar, the North American Free Trade Agreement that just really um, led and triggered massive migration to the US in terms of destabilizing Mexico's economy, but also um, Operation Gatekeeper, which was passed uh, during the Clinton administration in 1994, which made it very difficult to cross into the US. Um, And literally I I highlight in, in the article how you know, policymakers were very aware that instead of actually halting or reducing migration numbers from the Mexican border, the only shift that was going to happen is more people were going to die. And that was just like something they were willing um, Mm -hmm. to allow. Uh, And so I, I discuss that quite a bit. I also talk about violence against migrants from border patrol agents while they're crossing, as an example of physical violence I talk about how the great number the greater number and growing number of deaths result in the fact that you have to have like entire cemeteries with these anonymous migrant bodies in these um, sort of like cemeteries within cemeteries uh nameless uh um bodies because so often migrants don't have identification with them when they're crossing into the united states and so those are some of the things that i cover but i also as a scholar of detention centers really focus on the detention process and how conditions inside migrant facilities are, like you said, by design, very violent so that people self-deport, so that they give up on their asylum claims if they are seeking that. And so that has led to really violent punitive conditions inside of detention facilities. And again, that's not new, but I definitely talk about this period in the 2000s and highlight, for example, the great degree of medical neglect. um, A lot of death caused from um, HIV compromised uh, conditions that definitely um, could be treat, are treatable, but because of the poor medical care inside facilities, uh, many migrants have passed away. I talk about suicides, which is really hard to read, but I argue that perhaps suicide isn't the best name because um, they're definitely state influenced in the fact that these are um, conduits of violence and death. And then lastly, I focus on the process that people undergo once they're deported to their home countries, like we mentioned earlier, and suicides come back up because a lot of folks rightfully so experience isolation and depression, which really affects their mental health.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It just made me think of that, uh, Adam sir quote about how the cruelty is the point, you know, right. <laughs> that's, that's right. kind of the, it, it's, it's mean because they want it to be, mean. um, right. And it's, it's dehumanizing and it's terrible. Um, but like you, like you said about the the suicide, I'm, I'm just looking at that part of your essay now. It's, it's not a, it's not an accurate term, is it? Because in a normal, in a vacuum, these people probably wouldn't be so distraught, you know, if, if they were treated like human beings, you know, so you're, right. you're basically leading them to a conclusion and, and, you know, suicide isn't really the, uh, the good name for it. I don't think so. Exactly. But um what kind of things surprised you in your research? You you mentioned, you know, having your own personal experiences, but but looking at the macro pitch, picture, is there any part of this research that that caught you by surprise, I guess?
1: Yeah, I I think that the level of medical neglect was surprising. Mm. So I'm not, you know, surprised that there is different types of violence and abuse inside essentially these carceral spaces. But sort of the degree of medical neglect and and dismissal, I found very hard to read and write about. So for example, um, I can share a story here. When I was doing research on the 1980s, a lot of migrants in detention write about in the archives how they would have different ailments, sometimes as like large as suffering from cancer and things like that of that nature. And officials would basically tell them, like, just take Advil for the pain and so not really dealing with their uh, medical issues at all. And then when I was a postdoc student in Washington a few years ago, I went to a detention facility nearby, they were having an event and so there were activists reading different testimonies from people inside the facility and this was four years ago, so long after the 1980s. And as um, the activist was reading this letter, the person who was detained inside literally was saying the same things, like I have these and these medical conditions and guards basically just tell me like, just take your Advil, like we can't do anything for you. And I remember like having to leave and just being so uncomfortable that nothing has changed and nothing had changed from the 1980s to the two thousands. And that was just very, so the degree was very surprising and disturbing to me.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Well, and that kind of proves that it doesn't, this approach doesn't even work. Like if if you're actually trying to reduce migration you haven't because people are still just desperate for, you know, survival and, and they're, and you making it harder on them isn't going to make any their situation that they're coming from any less desperate. So they're still willing to go through, you know, the potential of this to get to, you know, this country. And uh, it's just, it's just mind boggling. It doesn't even, it's not, it's not even effective to be mean to people. It's just mean, like, it's not even, yeah. it's not even good policy.
1: Right. Um, and I think, the way I see it is because the goal is not necessarily to altogether reduce migration as it is to manage migration, Mm -hmm. right? So in a capitalist society, the United States needs uh, a labor force that can be exploited. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think policymakers are interested in reducing let's say migration from Latin America by a lot, I think the goal is to manage it so that you don't have a country full of migrants and all of the implications, um, while still having access to a percentage that can be used as an exploitable labor force.
0: Yeah, that's that's the part that I never really understood because you know uh, Republicans love che- free, and cheap labor but then again it's like it's like it's like the capitalism the racism they fight who will win whoever wins we both lose um yeah. but uh you know it's it's it yeah there is there is a need for a permanent under, underclass isn't there i mean somebody somebody's gonna gonna pick the fields and it's not it's not gonna be them you know so they gotta have somebody do that uh so but it's but then again they they want to clamp down on it so hard and yeah, it's just like they have to just do it enough to like keep the balances in line. It's, it's really a, a sick game. Um, right. But yeah, gosh, it's, well, it's just a, such a distressing topic. And it doesn't seem like there's any hope on the horizon, at least in the, at the moment of, of things getting better. You know, I, I think we all saw the uh, pictures of the Haitian uh, migrants uh, and the people on the horseback. Uh, it was just uh, awful. So it's like the saga continues. It doesn't, you know, President Biden is, is continuing that that policy and and, right. and, and, and keep, it just keeps going. Uh, do you see any, any uh, change on the horizon or is it just more of the same?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely goes back to what you mentioned earlier about this issue really being bipartisan, right? And so historically and contemporarily, we've seen people across the political spectrum advocate for measures that on the ground end up being very violent for migrants throughout the entire detention and deportation regime. And so this is one of the reasons why I ask certain questions, not necessarily in the article, but in in my book, The Shadow of El Centro More Broadly, where I talk about you know, the function in the root of migrant incarceration really being to be intentionally, like you say, cruel, or the words I use are um, punitive and um, instructive and violent. And so if that's true, I don't see things changing in terms of reforming parts of the system. Um, Personally, I'm an abolitionist of uh, migrant incarceration because I really feel like as someone who's traced that history, it has been violent from the very beginning. um, And that hasn't changed regardless of who's been in office.
0: Mm -hmm. Right, right. And um, I feel like there was a time, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago or something that there was some seemed like there was some hope of some sort of immigration reform, but it it just seems like it that's totally fallen apart. And I don't I don't see anyone, you know, when we were debating like, you know, we were mentioning the, the dreamers before sort of and you know, that's, that's such a no brainer to me. Like, yeah, let them, let them stay. They don't remember not being here. What are you going to send them to? Like, of course, just let them be here. Why not? And uh, that was even that was an issue. And it's like, oh, come on, we can't even agree on that much. Like, that's the easiest one. (laughs) Like, (laughs) the
1: thing with policy is that it's a compromise, right? So, a good example that I like to share with my students is one of the biggest immigration examples of reform was during the Reagan administration. And Yes, a lot of people um, were able to stay in the United States with um, amnesty. And that was seemingly a positive, but then if you analyze a lot of the Reagan administration's immigration policies, it actually created more infrastructure for today's de- deportation um, and detain detention regime. And so that's the thing too with reform is that it comes with compromise, and in the long term, we see its negative effects. Um, so that's one example I like to bring up.
0: Right, right. And then you, we haven't even gotten to the broken families and, and the, the kids being ripped from their parents. And, and it's just, uh, there's no putting this back together for these people. Some of them, I mean, uh, I guess we can try to find some, some family members or, or try to, to fix what's been uh, broken, but I just, I don't know how we're going to do it in every case. And it just, just seems like it, somebody should have known that this was not a good, good policy and separating families. And uh, it's just, that was just such a heartbreaking episode from the last few years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and sort of going back to um, different administrations, Unfortunately, what happened is in equating so many of those horrific policies and practices of, of family separation with Trump, is that once Trump is no longer in office, the like focus, the, the, you know, the highlight and focus on the issue sort of is watered down now under Biden, even though, like you said, things have continued. Um, mm-hmm. so that That's... A flaw in associating some of these um practices with any one administration
0: oh yeah well now that goes to something I was thinking about the other day it's just like a lot of our problem I mean many of our problems are not four or eight year problems like like the, the 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 solution if there is one will take much longer than that and Who knows who's going to be in charge in between uh, that time and, you know, who's going to come out on top and, uh, you know, one person might go this way and then the next person might take it back this way. And it's like these these problems have been going on for like 50 years. Like, uh, you know, it's 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 not one it's not within the term of one president that it could possibly be done. So. Uh, I don't know it's just, I don't know you know make somebody dictator for life probably not a good answer but um, you know what I mean like it's it just seems like such a such a small amount of time and and this is this, is, this whole system that you describe is just so uh fundamentally broken it it seems like it's larger than one administration could could or would fix so right but um but yeah but I, yeah, it's just, it was, it's a very well done essay. I just, I had a real hard time reading it. I'll, I'll be, I'll be real honest. Um, yeah, was,
1: yeah, no, it's, de- it's definitely a very heavy topic. For sure. And I had a hard time writing it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, I did look on your, uh, your biography here and I did want to ask you about uh, veganism. because I am yeah. interested in that too. Um, talk about your uh, project that you're working on now with that.
1: Yeah. So um, once The Shadow of El Centro was published in March, I made um, quite a bit of progress thinking about a Sanket project. And personally, I've been vegan now for four years, so not a super long time, um, but have become increasingly increasingly passionate about veganism in my personal life and decided that I would love to explore that topic a bit more, specifically um, historicizing the longer lineage and roots of veganism because the term is coined in Europe in the 1940s but I'm really exploring and wanting to argue that um, if we look at say the Americas there are so many different foods and practices that are vegan, vegan vegan-like, that are an important part of this narrative and the struggle um, that are not necessarily acknowledged within mainstream white veganism, I don't think from what I've seen um, these last four years or so. And so that's something that I'm increasingly interested in. And in addition to this book that I'm working on, which is specifically on Latinx veganism, I'm also starting a podcast that explores a similar topic with a, a friend of mine.
0: Oh, cool. Um, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I've always been interested in, in veganism and vegetarianism. Um, I, I'm, I, you know, I, it would be very difficult for me to imagine doing it all the way, but how did you get interested in it at first?
1: Yeah. Well, I finished the PhD and, okay. uh, Had some time as a postdoc student in Seattle, and Seattle's just very vegan friendly, and so it was easy. Mm to have the time and the space and the resources for the first time in a long time to really think about food and my relationship with food and animals um, and something that I had always like been interested in but had never made the leap um, and just like made some good vegan friends while I was there and seeing them cook and cook with them made me realize that it was possible um, and I at first just tried it like okay let's see how it goes um, Kind of transitioning to veganism, not expecting it to stick, and it did. <laughs>
0: mm. It
1: did. Um, and so now I definitely consider myself an intersectional vegan and a vegan for all different kinds of reasons, such as animal liberation and all of these, you know, important causes. Um, but initially, it was more thinking about my health and how badly I treated myself in grad mm. school. <laughs> cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, I guess I my my biggest concerns, because I mean, ethically, yeah, I I get that. Uh, I totally understand that. Um, the animal cruelty and the in the factory farming and all that kind of stuff. You don't you don't need to convince me. I understand. Um, but for me, uh, it, protein seems like a hard one. How do you get what What's your main sources of protein? Where do you, Where do you go for that?
1: Yeah. So a lot of plants have protein. Of course, it's not Mm -hmm. in the greatest quantities, but like beans and legumes have quite a bit of protein. So that's my go-to. for that. Yeah. And so it just, you know, it's good to remind myself that like the protein we get from animals is the plants that those animals are eating.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Great
1: to the source.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. That makes sense.
1: Um,
0: What was the hardest to give up uh, when you gave up meat?
1: Um, the hardest was not me actually, because, um, even when I was a lot younger living with my parents, they're not big meat eaters. They Mm. mostly eat some seafood and chicken. So that was not that challenging for me. I think what was more challenging was dairy actually. Okay.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Um, are you ever like tempted (laughs) to to, to break (laughs) your veganism? Is there ever like a really good meal in front of you and you're like maybe just this once <laughs> not that you've been good <laughs> and, you know, if
1: one day because you never know one day <laughs> i'm not vegan i don't think it would be because like i'm craving a certain food <laughs> it's more that sometimes it's very inconvenient right yes so I live, absolutely uh-huh. i live in denver colorado and thankfully it is a very vegan friendly city mm-hmm. um And so when I'm out and about not cooking for myself, I have plenty of options, Mm -hmm. but that's not always true. Like, for example, my hometown, um, in the East Bay, it's far enough East that it's a small town. Um, with just like chain restaurants um, and I can't even think of a single like fully vegan place there that Mm. would be really difficult and so I don't think it's like a food that I would crave it's more just like in some spaces you don't have the access and resources to eat an all vegan um, diet or or to practice veganism and it's Mm -hmm. holistic meaning Um, and so I think that would be um more what would happen in this potential hypothetical future right <laughs> no no <laughs> doubt
0: um but do you find yourself because this is another thing i've heard do you find yourself eating just greater quantities of food now because you're vegan
1: sorry can you say that again
0: oh i said do you find yourself eating greater quantities of food just because you need like you said that their plants have protein but it's not like that concentrated hit of 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 meat uh yeah, uh... yeah.
1: No, I, I would say. Normal sized
0: meals, normal. Okay.
1: The same that I did before. Okay.
0: All right. I just didn't know if you had to, (laughs) had, had to eat like, like a lot, just a greater quantities of food, uh, because you, you're trying to get everything you need, but, um, no, I've had, I've had great vegan food. Um, I just, I worry about my own, uh, getting everything that I would, I would need, I guess. I, I just uh, I haven't, I've never really thought about that. I've thought about doing it for a short period of time, but never, uh, never for a long period of time, but, but I, I am interested in it. So it's, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Four years. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's a long time. Um, but, uh, what are your favorite vegan dishes? Like, if you're trying to show somebody, like, okay, vegan food is actually good. Like, what would you mm-hmm. make them?
1: Well, I will admit, um, I'm not the best cook. Okay,
0: well, you're at a restaurant. What would you? Order yeah, I was gonna one? say. <laughs> you really you don't have, have, have to do, do the cooking. It's okay. It's okay.
1: I would absolutely take them to one of the many. There great you go. Vegan
0: restaurants.
1: <laughs> Denver. Um, I cook a lot of basics, like I said, so like legumes, lentils, salads, things like that. But if I'm wanting to like treat myself or take somebody um, out and show them like a nice place to eat vegan, um, one of my favorite restaurants is called called Calo's in in Denver. And it's actually a Mexican restaurant from Michoacan, which is where my parents are from in Mexico. And they're not fully vegan, but like a really large percentage of their menu is vegan mm. and because it's mexican owned like the food to me tastes really good um and authentic that could be a problematic term but authentic we'll just say that mm. um and that's not always the case in denver and so that's really lovely that i can just like order something that is nostalgic and reminds me of childhood f- foods um and happens to be fully vegan
0: hmm. okay now, do you eat any of the impossible burger beyond burger? Because <laughs> like, here, here's my thing about those. They, they do, you know I've had I've had those and I you, if you just told me that it was meat, I probably would have not even known. but uh, but the thing is, it's so, processed. I mean they have to do so much to it to get it to taste like that, right? It's it's not just like that normally. So I, that almost seems like the health benefit is being counteracted by the amount of processing that has to go into the food, you know what I mean? Right. So. right.
1: I was actually just having this conversation the other day. Um, So I have had Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers, mostly because um, in restaurants that are only like, they have vegan options, but they're not fully vegan. That seems to be like Mm -hmm. their go-to. Yep. is a <laughs> a burger, and so yep. we, when I've been in a pinch, I tend to order that. Um, it's not my favorite. Uh, I don't necessarily feel like I need to replicate the taste of beef, which is what they're trying to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you're right. So I mentioned earlier that I cook a lot of like basic staples like lentils, and that's because I try to try not always succeed, but try to eat slightly less processed foods, and so I will eat them on occasion, but they're not my favorite.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Sometimes all you can have is the bean burger, you know, it's like, that's, that's what's available. Um, right. but, uh, now here's another question though. Would you eat the cultured meat? You've heard of this, right? I like Lab grown meat. Would you do that? It's cruelty free. So, you know, <laughs> that takes it. that concern away, but it's still, you know, technically meat, I guess right. it is. I don't <laughs> know. Is it meat? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs>
1: I mean, I wouldn't personally, just because I, like I said, I'm not necessarily craving Mm -hmm. things that taste like me or
0: substitute
1: Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. So not necessarily, but yes, there is a growing plethora of alternatives.
0: Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. I I see why people um, say, oh, this, 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 or that tastes like this 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 meat product or whatever but i only i feel that like that sets you up for disappointment almost because it's just like if you just told me it was a thing i would just assume it was the thing and i wouldn't be comparing it to the other thing but i'm now i'm like oh i don't know this really really doesn't taste like you say it does (laughs) (laughs) um yeah it's kind of i don't know it's kind of a losing proposition for me but uh i i yeah i'm very interested in it uh I'm only asking all these questions because I've, I've, I've thought about this so much myself, but I've never actually done, done the work myself to go yeah. all the way. Um, yeah. Now, why did you go for the full, you mentioned uh, your reasoning a little bit, but why did you go for the full veganism and not vegetarian or pescatarian, some other in between? Well, you, you went all the way.
1: Yeah, I think it was um, the people I was uh, becoming friends with Mm. were vegan. And so I didn't really think too much about it. But now it definitely makes sense in terms of my ethics. Um, And the dairy industry is also very awful, um, as we know to like Mm. dairy cows, for example. Sure. Um, And so ethically, it just made sense um but initially i think it was just that like the people i was cooking with were vegan and
0: not vegetarian Mm. oh that makes sense for sure um now going back a little bit to the um the history of veganism how does can you explain a little bit more more about that because i I sort of think when i think of veganism it seems like a a newer idea uh, that people have had but it's it's not really right it's it's an older idea
1: well, the term is relatively new. It mm-hmm. was created in 1944 um, in England um, by a person's name who I can't remember off the top of my head. But um, yeah, 1944. And so that was the first time that veganism was coined as this movement that was not only vegetarian, but strictly vegan, meaning that to the best of one's ability, you would not consume animal products. So really thinking about meat and dairy and leather and all these other um, products that uh, have animal, um, any any type of animal Mm. related to them. And so the term technically is relatively new. And so like mainstream veganism is relatively new. Um, But like I mentioned earlier, like people have been eating largely vegetarian and vegan diets, mostly out of like poverty reasons. Right. So Mm -hmm. like meat is expensive. Mm. um, And so I know uh, my family, for example, my dad would talk about when I was little, like how he grew up eating beans, like just a pot of beans because he had like a lot of brothers and sisters and that just made more sense financially in his town in Michoacan. And so that's like still a slightly relatively new um, example. Um, but yeah, like indigenous societies, say in in Mexico City, which is at the time was known as Tenochtitlan, at the height of the Aztec or Mexica Empire, um, they did eat things like rabbits, but cattle, cows, is like a European um, a, a process of European colonization right there were mm. no cows in the americas until um europeans colonized different indigenous societies and brought them with them um and so that's i think a part of the narrative that's missing from understanding veganism is that a lot of today's uses of meat and dairy can be seen as like this older form of changing indigenous diets and ways of living and, and food ways
0: hmm yeah definitely and I I think part of my you know ability to still eat you know meat is that I I'm so separated from the process of (laughs) of getting the meat and I think if I was like living among animals more I guess maybe I would I would at least think harder about that part of it but I feel like in our modern society it's so easy to be detached
1: Well, (laughs) and and I I would argue that's intentional right well
0: sure yeah absolutely
1: yeah, if we all actually saw what goes into our food, there's a lot of things oh that gosh. terrify us.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can hardly stand to read the label sometimes, let alone like watch the harrowing video from the slaughterhouse. Like I can't. Right. Goodness gracious. Um, well, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Um, well, another thing I read uh, in your bio that, that I did want to ask you about because I, I've I've kind of been thinking about this term uh, Latinx. That is a term that has kind of uh, come about in the last few years um however some of the i uh, you know like I, I mentioned i lived in ukiah for a while uh and so, some of the you know older mexican gentlemen that i knew i'm not sure that they would use that term i don't want to put words in their mouth but i i don't i don't feel like that they would um but where did where did that term come from how is it used who who uses it and why i i, I i'm very interested
1: yeah so younger generations have definitely wanted um, an alternative that is not uh, so gendered, right? Spanish is very gendered. Mm. and so it's, it's an alternative that is non-binary um, and more inclusive in a lot of ways by putting the X instead of an A or an O because people don't always identify with those identities. And so um, this is a term that's been uh, used in my lifetime, right? So I remember mm. these transitions when I was in college many years ago what people would do is like the at symbol. um, Mm. And that was popular for a time. And more recently the X was included, but you're right that like, it's definitely controversial and a lot of people who are very invested in maintaining certain notions of Spanish and language uh, don't like it because they either say it's confusing. There's lots of reasons, right? Either they Mm -hmm. think it's confusing, they think it's not proper or they just don't care about (laughs) um, a non-binary alternative. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I use it if I'm talking about our contemporary moment But for example, in my book, The Shadow of El Centro, exactly what you just said, for those reasons, I realized like, okay, the migrants that I'm writing about in the 1940s would never have identified as- Right,
0: they wouldn't have known what you were talking about.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I don't use that term in those moments, but I do use it in our present, whether I'm speaking Mm. to someone um, or whether I'm talking about like the last, I don't know, seven years or so um, in my writing. And so it's something that like I- I want to be inclusive to folks and how they identify, but yes, it's definitely a contested term.
0: Thank you for, for talking to me so, for so long about all these things. I, I hope I didn't ask any stupid questions along the <laughs> way. So I'm just, I'm, I'm fascinated in, uh, in all this stuff, especially the, the veganism and all that. But um, the question I asked before uh, we go here is uh, what music have you been listening to lately?
1: Yeah. So yesterday and today I've been listening on repeat to Chicano Batman because they're actually going to be in Denver um and it's a group band that I really like and I'm going to see them on Thursday and so they've been um on my in my background (laughs) these last few days
0: oh nice okay yeah I've I've heard of them somewhere I'm trying to remember what what I've heard them from well what what would their big song be Oh um, Oh no, they had a tiny desk concert. That's why they, they are. They yep. Did. I've seen yeah, that.
1: I was actually just listening to the tiny desk concert today. Yeah. So they're from um, Los Angeles nice. in California. Uh, they're Chicano, hence the name. Very cool. <laughs> um, and they will be in Denver on Thursday.
0: Awesome. Well, geez, I'll have to get this out before then so people can go. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Uh, well, I thank you again for taking so much time to talk to me. And uh, I, I, uh, appreciate i'll read whatever books you have coming out here i know you already have one and, and you got another coming out so I'd, I'd be uh interested in reading whatever else you have coming up and talk to you again here so, thank you thank well. you so
1: much for the invitation
0: and for chatting with me oh no problem oh. um well thank you again and yeah have a great night i'll talk to you soon right, Bye bye. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, RSS, and now Spotify. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. If you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgesshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Also, if you want to call or text the show for any reason, the number is 317-674-3547. Until next time.